like you to invite you to turn back in your Bibles to the text we opened with tonight, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. I'll reread each of those verses one at a time as we go through them tonight. First, let's pray. Lord, our God, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear in a fresh way these familiar words, anticipating the future suffering and victory of Lord Jesus on the cross. Please help us to listen with understanding. Give me clarity to help us to to meditate on the cross of Christ in a way that is faithful to the scriptures. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. There's a, a wonderful poetic image in just a few lines by the poet T.S. Eliot in 1940, where he's dealing with the mystery of suffering. Ordinarily, if you're acutely ill, say you have appendicitis and you need emergency surgery, then eventually you're going to expect to find yourself in a sterile, brightly lit operating theater. You'll expect... If you get a glimpse of your surgeon, that he's going to be a, a capable, confident-looking person wearing very neat, spotless scrubs. After all, you're the sick one. He's the surgeon. I'd like you to listen to this very different, surprising image that T.S. Eliot gives us. He says, the wounded surgeon. The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands, we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art, resolving the enigma of the fever chart. A wounded surgeon. The poet's impressing on us there the, that I think the most compelling answer to what's called the problem of evil, the clearest resolution to the mystery of all of our suffering in a a broken and cursed and sin-saturated world, is ultimately to be found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is that wounded surgeon whom Isaiah sets before us ahead of time when he writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We often speak about what's called the humiliation of Christ um, when we think about and celebrate the Incarnation, the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth, laid in a manger, and so on. But of course, the Incarnation was just the, the beginning of a lifetime of ever-deepening humbling and suffering that would characterize the whole span of Jesus' life between the manger and the cross. 
might remember how the catechism puts it. Christ's humiliation meant being born, yes, and that in a low condition, yes. Meant the lawgiver placing himself for a time under the law. But it also meant more than that. It meant undergoing the miseries of this life, the miseries of this life, wading through uh, the kinds of griefs and sorrows that we endure as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And only at the end of those miseries, those griefs and sorrows, came at last the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he entered into those weaknesses so that he could bear them with us. But not just with us. This is important. We would be quite mistaken at this point to imagine that Jesus did all of this just to demonstrate his sympathy with us. Just to show us how much he cares. As as though simply having Jesus live through our miserable experience of life in a fallen world would make anything better for us. I suppose it's true that misery loves company. And of course we say that ironically, if not sarcastically, because neither common sense nor the Bible gives us any reason to think that we would really be any better off just for having Jesus suffer with us. That's why we need to go on to verse 5, where Isaiah makes even clearer that Jesus did not just suffer with us. He suffered for us. That's the gospel. That's what makes all the difference here. Isaiah here describes the death of the suffering servant of the Lord as a sacrifice, where he stands in the place of somebody else, where what they deserve ends up falling on him so that they instead can experience something very different from what they actually deserve. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. In other words, that hymn that we sang earlier is saying, if you think that your sin is no big deal, if you think, well, I'm not hurting anybody, or everybody does this, or it's not that bad, or at least I've never done something really bad, or, or maybe that the good that I've done maybe somehow outweighs the bad, Isaiah is calling you to look at the suffering of this servant, to look at the cross. And if you do, that illusion should evaporate in an instant. When you realize that Jesus was pierced for your transgressions, that Jesus 
was crushed for your iniquities. For you to have peace with God. That this is what Jesus had to bear in your place. Here, you may view rightly the real nature of your sin and get a better estimate, it says, of its real guilt before God. It's very important for us to understand what our sin is really like. Forever to appreciate what the cross is all about or value the forgiveness of sins that Christ purchased upon it. But even as we see here the depth of the sinfulness of sin, we also see the hope, the way out that Isaiah is also setting before us because what did all of this terrible suffering of Jesus earn? Peace, Isaiah says. Peace with God for sinners. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is what puts an end to the warfare between selfish rebels like us and the sovereign and holy king of the universe that we have so feebly and pitifully been shaking our fists against. See, by his death on the cross, Jesus made peace. He made the way, opened the way for all of those shabby and pathetic rebels to receive not just amnesty. That would be a treasure enough. Not just amnesty, though. That's the thing. But adoption to become children of that king. That's what Jesus did. Seated around his table, living in his house forever. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. As upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with God. That last line in verse 5, there's met some with some uh, confusion at times. Isaiah says, and with his wounds, we are healed. And some people have taken that to mean that because Jesus died on the cross, on that basis, we can expect to experience physical healing now in this life because, Isaiah says, with his wounds, we are healed. Now, is it true that Jesus is the great physician? Yes that the one who created our bodies has the sovereign ability to heal them at will. And that we ought to pray with the confident expectation that he is able to do so, yes. But is physical healing in this life part of the atonement? Is it guaranteed to a Christian by Jesus' death on the cross? I think the Bible's answer to that would be no. When And we can see that from this passage itself, because when Isaiah says, with his wounds we are healed, what is he talking about? He's not talking about mere relief from physical problems. He's talking about relief from the wrath of God, from the just consequences of our sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That is what we need healing from. And that healing, that healing, is what Jesus died to give us. Now that healing will one day extend to our bodies at the resurrection. 
when Jesus comes back. And that is great hope for us, for our bodies and souls as whole human beings. But until then, what the New Testament teaches us is that our outer bodies, frankly, are wasting away. That's the language of 2 Corinthians. While inwardly we are being renewed, and as Paul says, the pain and weakness that our bodies experience right now, it is a light and a momentary affliction that's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that means that right now, here's, here's the hope in this. For those who are experiencing physical suffering, that means that right now, this healing that Isaiah speaks of is a healing that you can truly experience even when your body is hurting, even when you are at your very weakest physically. If you are in pain or if you are struggling, that doesn't mean that you haven't got this healing yet. What it means is that even though your outer self is wasting away, Jesus is holding out to you the cure for your deepest need, your soul sickness of sin. By trusting in the one who not only took on our griefs and sorrows to suffer with us, but was also stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, and crushed for us on the cross. And even, even though your sin has metastasized throughout your soul like a cancer, even though it has polluted your life and your relationships like a creeping infection, it seems incurable. Jesus' wounds on the cross mean healing. For you. His death is the cure that can restore you to life because with his wounds we are healed. In verse 6, the poetic imagery shifts. Isaiah portrays us here in a new way as sheep that keep wandering off, sheep that keep ignoring the voice of the shepherd repeatedly stepping over whatever boundaries God has placed around us. And that's what sin is like. It's hearing the voice of God and saying, no, this is the way to go. This is the path that I want to take. Never mind that God says that over here is the path of life and joy and well-being and flourishing with me. And we say, no, I think I know better. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do, not even the Lord. So you can see how foolish, how irrational our sin really is. But Isaiah goes on to say that for all of our wandering, for all of that stubbornness in our hearts, all of our insistence on our own way, that the Lord in his grace, undeserved favor he shows us. He's taken all of that sin, all of that stubborn wandering, all of that iniquity, as he calls it. He's bundled it together, and he has laid it not on us, but on someone else. He's laid it on this suffering servant. See, what was happening on the cross is that the guilt of our sin was transferred. It was counted as though it was Jesus' sin. Of course, Jesus never sinned. He lived a sinless life. 
But you see, that's exactly why he could take our sin and say, count that as though I had done it, as though I had said it, as though I had thought it. And then take all of my righteousness, all of my purity, all of my obedience, and count it all as though they had done it. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save, the hymn says. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave, the justice of God against your sin laid on Jesus instead. Remember what Jesus said about himself. He said, I am the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? Remember, the good shepherd, he says, lays down his life for the sheep. This was Jesus' willing choice to lay his own life down, carrying our sins in his body on the cross so that we would not have to bear it anymore. Neither the sin itself nor the eternal consequences of that sin because Christ had borne our sins in his body on the tree. The Lord has taken all of the iniquity of all of us wandering sheep and he has laid it on Jesus Christ. And so in the great irony of the cross, the good shepherd became for us the lamb, a lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt so that none will ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Good shepherd, the wounded surgeon. And just below those lines about the wounded surgeon we started with, T.S. Eliot concludes that section by reminding us that the death of Jesus is our only hope, but it is also a humbling hope for us. He says, the dripping blood, our only drink, the bloody flesh, our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. In other words, the cross, our utter dependence on the cross of Christ, should humble us when we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Our richest gain we must count but loss and poor contempt on all of our pride. But Eliot's line that, that really gets me is the last one in that same section. The dripping blood are only drink, the bloody flesh are only food. In spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. What is good? about Good Friday? What is good about the Son of God being stricken, smitten, and afflicted? I think Isaiah gives us the answer here. And it is that the griefs Jesus bore were our griefs. The sorrows he carried were our sorrows. And All of his suffering brought us peace, and his wounds gave us healing because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And that is good, good news for the people of God. So I'd invite you to ponder this in a fresh way tonight and to ask yourself this peace, this healing, this forgiveness of sins that Isaiah is describing, is that something that belongs to me personally? Am I trusting this Jesus, this good shepherd, this wounded surgeon who laid down his life, not not just for some other people that I know, but for me? Is this my Savior? Or am I still going my own way, wandering sheep? Am I still holding on to my control over my own life and insisting that I'm good enough for God just the way I am and so refusing this priceless gift of forgiveness and healing and peace with God that Jesus died to give? If you're not trusting in Christ right now, all I can tell you is that here, And only here do we have a firm foundation. Here is the refuge of the lost. And the only hope for any of us is in this truth of all truths. That Jesus died for sinners. So let's turn together in faith to him as we pray. Our great God, we are humbled by this reminder of the extent of our sin, the depths of our rebellion against you, the costliness of the atonement, and the intensity of the suffering of Jesus as he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us. Lord, how we thank you for his wounds that brought us healing. Or the ways that the way that he brought us peace by suffering in our place and taking the punishment that we deserved. And Lord, we ask that you would Hold the cross of Christ always before us. And teach us, Lord, in the shadow of that cross to crucify the sin that is within us, remembering that for those sins Christ had to die. And we ask also that as those who have been forgiven and healed and restored, ransomed, by the blood of Jesus, that you would make us more like him, conform us more and more to this suffering servant, this dying Savior, as we look forward to meeting him one day and being like him when we will see him as he is, no longer upon the cross, but risen in glory. We ask that in the meantime you would transform us more and more into his image. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.